is Our American Stories, and we love hearing stories from our own home state. We do something about this state, too, and there are not a lot of stories about Mississippi out there in the country. And we broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, a small town about an hour south of Memphis, the home of William Faulkner, the home of Ole Miss, so many other great writers, John Grisham, Morgan Freeman lives nearby, and we are happy to call this place home. And Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. But it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. 
The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, We want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenbergen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, When Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, Someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues... Here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a gem. It turns out diamonds haven't always been rare stones. Since 1870, when huge diamond mines were discovered in South Africa, soon after that discovery, the British financiers behind the South African mining effort realized the diamond market would be saturated if they didn't do something about it. So in 1888, they set two audacious goals. One, monopolize diamond prices by creating De Beers mines. De Beers would then be able to stabilize the market by creating both the supply and the demand for diamonds worldwide. Tom Zollner is a journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. He wrote the book, The Heartless Stone, A Journey Through the World of Diamonds, Deceit and Desire. Here's Tom with the story of that journey. My name is Tom Zollner, and when I was 32 years old, I entered into what is a fairly common rite of passage for a man in America. I asked somebody to marry me, and I gave her a diamond engagement ring because that's just what you were supposed to do. And I knew very little about diamonds. Um, I studied up on it as best I could. Uh, which wasn't very deep, um, and I learned that there's this tradition out there that you're supposed to spend two months of your salary as a benchmark, sort of a sliding scale for uh, what's expected, and I wanted to do what was expected, so um, I figured out what I could afford, and uh, I bought a, uh, her name is Anne, was Anne, I bought her a diamond ring. Uh, I say was because the engagement broke up and I was uh, made the owner of a used diamond ring and I learned, wow, there's really not a lot to do with this. Um, I didn't want to let go of it for emotional reasons and I also learned if I was just going to sell it back on the used market that there really is no used market. And as the ring just sort of sat there in the back of my closet, I began to wonder more and more about it, and it might have been a way of channeling the grief over the lost relationship, but I began to look into diamonds in a way that was a little bit deeper and a little bit different than, uh, than I did when I was researching what to buy. I wanted to know, well, where did this come from? And so this took me on uh, what you might call a quest. It lasted for 18 months, and in that time, I went to 16 different countries on the globe to try and understand where diamonds come from and why we hunger for them. So I'll tell you just a little bit about uh, where I went. First, I went to a place called the Central African Republic, which is a diamond-producing nation at the heart of Africa. It's one of the poorest countries on the globe. It produces... Uh, it ranks number 10 in terms of diamond production among all countries, and yet uh, it is uh, poverty of some of the worst kind, political instability of some of the worst kind. And those two things, unfortunately, go together. I went out to the back country and learned how diamonds are mined for guys who are making less than uh, a dollar an hour to uh, comb through the soil, very dangerous work, uh, sometimes in violent conditions, to find uh, these uh, pieces of carbon which are brought up to the Earth's surface through uh, these volcanic tubes of what's called the kimberlite. And so you find them in the river bottoms. It's some of the most primitive mining imaginable. And uh, some of these diamonds 
emerging from such miserable conditions still find their way to uh, the U.S. market. Uh, I went to Angola, another uh, nation in Africa, of course, uh, which has been racked with, uh, had been racked by civil war, largely funded through the, the smuggling and the sales of diamonds. Uh, I went to India, which is the headquarters, uh, the, the, state of, the Indian state of Gujarat, uh, polishes the majority of diamonds uh, in the world, and I saw the conditions in some of these factories where child labor is used to uh, get the diamonds into the glittery shape that uh, Westerners have expected. Uh, I went to Russia to uh, see the birthplace and still the, uh, the headquarters of the synthetic diamond industry, a way that uh, machines have been built to recreate the, the, the heat and the pressure and the earth's mantle that create the diamonds in the first place. And then I took a long look at the marketing history of the diamond. Um, the way that uh, these shiny pebbles have been sold uh, to Western consumers through the genius, and I say that word uh, with a certain amount of respect, but also advisedly, the genius of the corporation called De Beers Consolidated Mines which uh, cornered the market in South Africa uh, in the uh, 1890s thanks to the, uh, the scheming of an Oxford graduate named Cecil Rhodes for whom the Rhodes Scholars are, are named. Uh, Cecil Rhodes founded uh, the De Beers Corporation and, and, and hit upon the insight that the way that you create high prices uh, for these uh, for these little minerals is that you just simply create artificial scarcity in the market, which is uh, what he did and what De Beers continues to uh, try and accomplish, even though it no longer dominates the market as it did today. So it was not only a hive of artificial scarcity, it was also a, uh, a marketing factory. Uh, it was the De Beers Corporation that created this idea out of whole cloth an invented custom that a young man is supposed to spend two months of his salary on his sweetheart's engagement ring. That turns out, it, it sounds like something from Charles Dickens, but it's actually a, uh, a complete marketing fable. And it was also out of the De Beers uh, Idea Factory with the help of a New York ad agency called J. Walter Thompson. Uh, th this idea of the eternity of a diamond, the poetry surrounding this trinket. Um, I look back at some of the ads that were created in the, in the Great Depression to uh, convince American men that this is what they needed to do, just to spend money even in the midst of a depression. And the ads all centered around the idea of temporality and of mortality and of the idea that this diamond is going to survive you. It, it, it's, it's almost rather morbid. But this was a successful advertising strategy, and it was out of this notion that your diamond will last beyond you that the, that the brilliant uh, slogan was coined, a diamond is forever. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever. De Beers. So... Just to give respect where respect is due, there, there is something chemically unique about a diamond. It's, uh, as it goes on the Mohs scale of density, it is a 10 out of a 10 scale. 
almost no other mineral, in fact, no other mineral, has the ability to slow down light uh, within the chamber of uh, its interiors. This is why a diamond sparkles so well. Uh, the speed of light at 186 1,000 miles per second has slowed down to 77,000 miles per second within a diamond, which is why it sparkles. And when you polish it in a particular configuration, the, uh, the effect is, 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 is really dazzling. I'm, I, I have no issue with that. Um, but to slow down the light um, in some ways is a metaphor for the diamond itself. It is a uh, a chamber of slow light and emptiness because at the heart of the diamond, which was my conclusion, is mythology. The mythology that society has spun around it and the individual mythologies that we put around diamonds. The story we tell about them, which is in fact, in its most prominent feature, the story of our engagement, the story of our marriage, one of the most mysterious and frightening uh, and lovely and potentially heartbreaking things that we get to do. Uh, the genius of De Beers and the diamond industry was that it was able to set up a toll booth uh, right at the entrance to this adventure. And this, for me, is the true legacy of the diamond. And at the heart of the, the book uh, that I wrote called The Heartless Stone. And you've been listening to Tom Zollner, journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. His book, The Heartless Stone, my goodness, go to Amazon and get it, or the usual suspects. Heck, go to a bookstore, too. And by the way, what a story he told. And we all know, especially we men who've done this, gone and bought that diamond and coughed up that two months' worth of pay, thinking, how did we get roped into this? Not the marriage, not the engagement, but that two months of pay thing. But we all do it, if we have any sense about us. What a work of marketing by De Beers, and by J. Walter Thompson, a diamond is forever. And as our writer and storyteller told us, that diamond is a toll booth at the entrance of the most important relationship in our lives, marriage, that mysterious, lovely, and often heartbreaking relationship. Tom Zollner's story, the story of the diamond, here on Our American Story. stories and by now you know we love to bring you stories about our veterans stories that help us appreciate the truly blessed lives we live today because of the many who paid the price and lost their lives in war in the past our own joey cortez brings us a story of a young man who learned this lesson as a young boy and who started a very special project as a junior in high school to help americans understand the gift our veterans have given us my name is Rishi Sharma. I just turned 22 and I'm on a mission to meet and film interview all the World War II combat veterans of the allied countries. To date, I've interviewed just over 1,100 World War II veterans across the US, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. The root of my fascination with World War II, I think it really just came from the books I was reading. I used to go to the library often as a kid with my mom 
and I would just, you know, get these history books and I would just read them or I would see stuff like Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers on the TV. And I mean, these guys were just so cool, you know, their, their uniforms, the way they acted. It, it just all I ever wanted to be was a Marine. But when I thought of a Marine, I thought of an 18 year old with nothing but the shirt on his back and a rifle in his hands fighting in the jungles of Guadalcanal or the sands of Iwo Jima. This good versus evil fight where everything seemed so morally clear that these young kids were putting their life on the line to help liberate an oppressed people across the world and to help restore democratic values and ideals and to get rid of these evil regimes. It just seemed so clear. And as I got older, you know, I realized that the world that we currently live in is not as black and white. And... I lost interest in the military, or joining at least, but I never lost my interest and appreciation for the World War II veterans. One day, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was reading a book called Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. It wasn't just like a, a historian just writing facts and giving statistics. It, it was really just a collection of different veterans sharing their experiences. And so I uh, started looking up some of the men I was reading about just to see, you know, what did they end up doing after the war and uh, are they alive? And a lot of them were. I just started looking up some of the phone numbers for the veterans who were alive and I wanted to talk to them just, to, I guess, to say thank you. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I found a few phone numbers, in particular a man named Lyle Book who at 21 commanded a platoon that held off over 500 Germans. A platoon's about 42 men, but it was an understrength platoon, so you could say half of it. And they held off 500 Germans during the Battle of the Bulge. And that one small action contributed greatly to the overall outcome of the war. And there were so many different things that happened because he was able to hold off this advance. He was 21, some of the men were killed, and then the, all of them were captured. And, I mean, it was just amazing to read what he had experienced. And so I called him up after finding his number. You know, this lady answers the phone, and I say, Hi, um, is Lyle Book the war hero here? And, and she says, Yes, but, but he's asleep. Could you call back in the morning? And I said, Okay, yeah, sure, no worries. I called him the next morning and he was really nice. And it's not like I had anything I wanted to propose to him, like an interview or say, you know, I'm going to come here and talk to you. I just, I just wanted to talk to him. And I wanted him to know that because of his actions in a war, 70 years later, a, a kid was given a full and a free life and that I'm not the only one. And I just wanted him to know that. As I held my phone in one hand, I held the book in the other, and I was talking to him, and I was also reading his account to him, and, you know, sharing, you know, what he had said, and he was telling me some of his thoughts on that particular action, and that's when it just struck me. I'm talking to a war hero in the worst war in human history, and all I had to do was pick up the phone and call him. If I wanted to talk to some superficial, useless celebrity like the Kardashians, I'd have to go through a million people. But to talk to someone who contributed more to this world than the world gave to him, 
It, it, all I had to do was pick up the phone and call. That's when I, I really realized that how many of these men are out there, how many stories are not told or preserved. I mean, for future generations to understand why they're free and who freed them. And so then I just started doing research about oral history projects, looking up different World War II interviews, and, and it just kind of got me on a whole, just got me on a roll. I contacted some of the oral history organizations, and it was disappointing because a lot of them told me to kind of go the hell away, and they didn't want some high school kids' help, which, which was unfortunate. You know, I here I was, I just genuinely wanted to help, and they didn't want that help, and, they, and yet... These are the same kind of people who complain about the younger generations, you know? And so I felt that was quite a contradiction that here they have an opportunity with a member of the younger generation and, and, and yet they don't want to, to do anything about it. And that really pissed me off. Um, and so I figured out, you know, I wanted to figure out how to do it myself. And one thing I had noticed in a lot of the World War II documentaries, a lot of them shied around the subject of combat. They would basically just have the veterans as token placeholders to say cliche phrases like war is hell, you know, stuff like that. And, th and they expect a civilian population to understand the gravity of that. But they don't really know the reality of what these men saw and what they had to do for our freedom. And so, I mean, I, I made no bones about it. I, I said, you know, I think it's very important that people who are the benefactors of what these men had to see and what they had to do in the worst war in human history. I think it's very important that people know the truth. And so when I started to do the interviews, or I looked up the guides of how these other oral history projects did it. And, and you know, like I said, even the guide questions, they all shied around combat. And so I always felt, especially after I started to do the interviews, that we live in a world where there is a trail of blood behind us and a path of blood in front of us. And it's an uncomfortable reality, but it's the truth. And I don't care if someone in the United States is the biggest pacifist or the largest pacifist in the world. And the simple fact is that the comfortable life that they are privileged to lead on a daily basis came at a price. And it wasn't a monetary price. It just happened to be the price of human lives because in order for everything to fall into place the way it has for all of us to be here to the point where you and I are having this conversation, it meant that people had to die of the allies and the enemy of the Axis forces had to be killed. Because all those things, the way it happened, they all led to this butterfly effect of us being here today. I mean, I've always felt that way, that... Me personally, I have a debt to pay because of the life that I'm able to live. The fact is that there was someone who was my age who sacrificed his life. And I, I find it to be a direct comparison as if I was tied up on a railroad track and there was a train coming towards me and someone comes and cuts me loose right before the train. I mean, I find that to be a parallel to what the World War II veterans have done for us today. Yes, I mean, it's not like they jumped in front of a car and pushed me, but in a bigger sense or in a larger sense, they did. And you've been listening to Rishi Sharma. All I ever wanted to be was a Marine. That's what he recalls of his earliest time in life. 
And then he came upon Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. And that was it. He wanted to talk to those Citizen Soldiers. And he made that great point that if you wanted to talk to some celebrity, you had to go through layers of people. But talk to a GI, someone who fought in World War II, one layer, if that at all, a mom, a mother, a bride, a brother or sister, that's all. And last, the idea that so many of the documentaries shied away from combat itself. Usual bromides like the horrors of war or war is hell. And he wanted to get that reality so we could all understand what that hell actually was. Rishi Sharma's story continues here on Our American Story. back with our American stories and Rishi Sharma's story. We left off with Rishi getting in touch with his first World War II veteran to thank him for his service. Let's get back to Rishi on how he got his start in interviewing these veterans to honor and preserve their stories. So after I started to contact the veterans on the phone, I wanted to meet the men in the flesh. I wanted to look them in their eyes and tell them, you know, what they've done for me and so many others. And I wanted to help preserve their story. And I had to figure out, where do I find World War II veterans? And, and I couldn't figure it out. And then I was talking to my history teacher one day about it. And they said, well, why don't you try the retirement home down the street? And I thought, oh, wow, that's a genius idea. I should do that. And so then I rode my bike one day after school to this retirement home. And I just walked to the front desk and I said, hi, I'm a student at Agora High and I just would like to interview some of the World War II veterans. And she says, well, you're going to have to talk to the director about that. So she goes into the office of the director and he comes out and he says, why don't you come in here, young man? And he asked me what I wanted to do and I, I explained just my gratitude for these men and I wanted to learn about what they had fought for and that I uh, just wanted to talk to them in real life. I had gotten a camera and this was my plan to, to interview them and preserve their stories. And he said, I'm so happy to see a younger person in this place wanting to interact with the greatest generation. He literally took me room to room to 25 World War II veterans. And he introduced me to them. He let me use an empty office space to do my interviews. And it was amazing. And I just fell in love with it and I just kept doing it. Eventually, my local paper did a story about what I was doing. And people started contacting me about veterans that they knew of in my community, their dads, their grandparents, their neighbors, their friends. And I, I started to schedule appointments. This is at high school, I'm scheduling appointments. There were many times when I would actually ditch class to go do interviews because I was learning more from the veterans than I was in school. One of the early veterans who I interviewed that I was close to, he, he, he was actually, he was, he, was a really, he was at that retirement home I mentioned earlier. He was, he was really one of my most closest friends when I started out. He was in the army 
he was a, an officer who fought with the 27th Division, which is the New York National Guard. And he fought in the Battle of Saipan, which doesn't get talked about enough, but that actually is where the Japanese had the largest bonsai attack, which is like a suicide attack where they basically just charge you. It was 4,000 Japanese soldiers overran the army's lines. He was a machine gun platoon leader, and his unit was on the outskirts where the Japanese made their breakthrough. And he was just telling me these stories about seeing wave after wave of Japanese come. And he was ordering his machine gunners to keep firing and to keep panning the machine gun left to right. And the Japanese bodies would stack up and stack up and stack up. And the incoming Japanese had to move the bodies of their dead comrades just to keep moving forward. But because there were so many of them, they overran the army's position, including his. He was wounded twice as well. And he seeked some refuge underneath a broken down jeep trying to pretend that he was dead. He had blood loss, and right before he passed out, thinking that he was going to die, all he was thinking to himself is this what he told me. I said, you know, what are you thinking, sir? You know, when you think you're about to die, and you're like 22. And he says, all I was thinking about was how sorry I would be for my folks, that they didn't know what happened to me, or how I died, and how upset they would be. And just how it would affect them. And now they wouldn't have someone to help when it comes to the income. And just how tough and how many questions they would have. And how they would never know. And how it would ruin their lives. And I'm thinking to myself, here's a guy who thinks he's about to die. And he cares more about what his family's thinking than about the fact that he's about to die. And I'm thinking, I said, you know, these men are amazing. And that, you know, it would be interesting if that was a unique story. But the fact is, I've met enough veterans that it's not unique. And that many of them feel that way when they were about to, when they thought they would, would get killed. And that's just a really amazing thing. Oftentimes uh, an article from Veterans Day or Memorial Day would come up and I would just contact that veteran, explain what I'm doing. And they would always say, yeah, you're welcome to come and talk to me. I'm, I'm happy you want to know. And it just got larger and larger to the point where I graduated high school and I knew that this is what I want to do as long as I can. As long as there are World War II veterans to be interviewed, I want to be there preserving their stories because I, I know that I would be able to do it in a way that other people wouldn't. And so what, what I ended up doing was creating a GoFundMe. I kept doing the interviews and I graduated high school. I created that GoFundMe and nothing happened. I would just reach out to news organizations. I would find random email addresses of reporters online and I would send them some information about what I was doing. And I, I must have sent almost a thousand emails to all these different reporters, USA Today, New York Times, LA Times. I mean, and I never heard back from anyone. I mean, the local paper did and some local TV stations did stories, but besides that, nothing. And uh, I had worked some odd jobs to raise some money for me to start traveling. And it was the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor coming up. And I did some more jobs. I raised some money for myself to get over there because I knew there'd be a lot of Pearl Harbor veterans. When I was at Pearl Harbor, that's when CBS News did a national story about my mission. They had come and filmed me a month before, but they, they ended up airing it around Pearl Harbor uh, during the anniversary. And that GoFundMe that had no money in it went up to like 
$150,000 over two days or something. And I got like 10,000 emails from people all across the country telling me about veterans they know of or offering me a place to stay or I, I don't care what people in other countries say about Americans. I, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the American people on average are some of the most generous and loving people in the whole world. The fact is that so many people were willing to donate their hard earned money for to a person they didn't know, but had just seen on the news, but believed in his mission. That really meant a lot to me. And so I came back to California with all this money and with all these leads. And I told my parents I wanted to do some interviews in some of the neighboring states. And I'd be back in a couple months. And uh, I, just, I just never came back. The biggest takeaway I, I, I've gotten is just that I am able to look at the world in a very different way than most people my age because I've heard firsthand about the sacrifices that had to be made for our way of life. And it's a, it's a very personal thing at this point. And it's just, I just wish more people understood what these men had to go through, the things they had to see, what they had to endure, you know, because and it, it, these men also need people to talk to because it's hard to see your best friend getting killed and have that forever in your head. It, 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 it's just really interesting that that they, they felt comfortable enough talking to me. I think that they're happy to know that the story is not just in their head. At least there's someone out there who understands a little bit of the hell that they had to go through in the war. And, and I, I think that makes them just happy to know that they aren't alone in sharing that thought because that's a very lonely thought to know that you're the only person that knows what it's like to see you know, your friends around you falling. And so now I, I've interviewed just over 1,100 veterans in the U.S., across 45 states, Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and, and I'm still doing it. Uh, money, I don't have them. I don't have as much money anymore. I, I, I figured that I could take some loans or credit card debt or something. I mean, I, I, just, I, I just know how important it is to do these interviews because these video interviews, and it's not just my interviews, but anyone that takes the time to video a World War II veteran talking about his experiences in the war, they're giving that gift to that family so that 200 years from now, that veteran's great, 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 great grandkids not just going to know their great, 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 great grandfather's name, but they'll get to know how he looked, the way he acted, the way he spoke, the way he laughed, the jokes he made, the stories he told, the way he pronounced certain words, certain expressions he would have. I mean, it's really giving them life. And that's the biggest privilege that I could ever have, or the largest one I could ever have, is knowing that I've done something to help, in a small way, the men who saved the world. And you've been listening to Rishi Sharma's story. What a magnificent young man. And to learn more, go to heroesofthesecondworldwar.org to donate to Rishi's GoFundMe page. That's heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. It all started with that answer. Why don't you go to the retirement home down the street? 25 World War II veterans called the place home, and Rishi was off to the races. 
he was ditching classes because he was learning more from the veterans than he did in school. And as long as there are World War II veterans, he said, I want to be there for them. And last but not least, his experience with the American people and our generosity. And the American people, the most generous and loving people in the world, giving a total stranger money because they believed in his mission. Rishi Sharma's story, the story of a Gen Zer getting in touch with the greatest generation here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorite subject, history. And all of our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. Stephen Ambrose was one of America's leading historians. At the core of his success, was his belief that history is biography and that history, as he loved to say, is about people. Stephen Ambrose passed in 2002, but his storytelling accounts can now be heard here at Our American Stories thanks to those who run his estate. Ambrose wrote the definitive biography of Dwight Eisenhower. Ike was born in 1890 in a rented shack near the railroad tracks in Denison, Texas. He was raised in a family of Mennonites, fundamentalists in their Christian faith who are also pacifists. Here's Stephen Ambrose with the story of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight David Eisenhower was a great and a good man. These two qualities don't always, or even often, go together. But they did with him. Obviously, that is an assertion that needs proof. Let me begin with some definitions. In 1954, President Eisenhower wrote his childhood friend, Sweet Hazlett, on the subject of greatness. He thought greatness depended either on achieving preeminence in some broad field of human thought or endeavor, or on assuming some position of great responsibility, and then so discharging his duties as to have left a marked and favorable imprint upon the future. The qualities of a great man, Eisenhower said, were wisdom, vision, integrity, courage, understanding, the power of articulation, and profundity of character. To that list, I'd personally add two others, decisiveness and luck. The qualities of goodness in a man, I believe, include a, a broad sympathy for the human condition. That is, an awareness of human weaknesses and shortcomings, and a willingness to be forgiving of them, a sense of responsibility toward others, a genuine modesty combined with justified self-confidence, a sense of humor, and most of all, a love of life and of people. That last is the key. Eisenhower loved life and he loved people. To me, that's the heart of his character. 
From it flowed all the rest. In the fall of 1912, third-class cadet Dwight Eisenhower, 22 years old, was walking down a hallway at West Point when a plebe running full tilt on some fool errand for an upperclassman ran into him, knocked him over. Reacting with what he called a bellow of astonishment and mock indignation, Eisenhower scornfully demanded, Mr. Dumgard, a generic term for a plebe, what was your PCS, previous condition of servitude? What did you do before you became a cadet? And then Eisenhower added sarcastically, you look like a barber. I was a barber, sir. It was Eisenhower's turn to go red with embarrassment. Without a word, he returned to his room, where he told his roommate, I'm never going to haze another plebe as long as I'm at this place. As a matter of fact, they'll have to run over and knock me out of the company street before I'll make any attempt again. I've just done something that was stupid and unforgivable. I managed to make a man ashamed of what he did to earn a living. He never hazed again. And as an adult, he never shamed a man. Respect for others, honesty in his dealings, love of life, these were some of the basic parts of his character. From whence did they come? Nurture and nature played their respective roles in shaping Dwight Eisenhower. Physically, he inherited a strong, tough, big, athletic body and extremely good looks with a quite fabulous grin along with keen intelligence. He also inherited a strong competitive streak from his parents, plus a bad temper, along with unquestioning love, stern discipline, ambition, and religion. They made him study, his parents did, read the Bible aloud, do chores, hold jobs as soon as he was old enough. They instilled in him a series of controls over his emotions, his temper most of all, they gave him a solid Victorian outlook on the relations between the sexes and on proper conduct. All his life he would blush if he slipped and said a hell or a damn in front of a lady. Thus he grew up in a strong Christian atmosphere. Not a sectarian atmosphere. He said once as president that this country has to be founded on a strong religious faith and I don't care what it is. What he meant was he didn't care if it was Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or River Brethren. <clears throat> he wants to find an atheist as someone who could watch Southern Methodists play Notre Dame and not care who won. <laughs> as president, he began attending church regularly because he felt it was important to set an example. It wasn't something that he had done earlier in his life. But the religion was always very deeply there. He began his first inaugural address with a prayer. And it went over so well, he decided to begin all of his cabinet meetings with prayers. About a year after he'd been in office, he was a half hour into a cabinet meeting when he slapped himself on the head and said, God damn it, we forgot the prayer. <laughs> From his parents, and from his experiences in Abilene, which is, after all, almost exactly in the heart of America, the lower 48, he absorbed such values as honesty and fair play in all dealings into the very marrow of his bones. 
He abhorred the idea of cheating or lying, and he never did either. He also absorbed a fervent attachment to democracy. It amounted to a religious faith. This grew naturally in the soil of that little town out there on the Kansas prairie. At West Point, and in his first 25 years in the Army, Eisenhower satisfied few of his ambitions. He didn't get to war in the first war, the Great War, and he was still a lieutenant colonel when the Second World War began and about to be forcibly retired. But he had learned his profession, and he had demonstrated another characteristic trait, patience. And it was rewarded. After Pearl Harbor, his star rose. And soon he was in Washington making war plans for Chief of Staff George Marshall. And then on to London to take command of the American forces in the European theater of operations. This threw him into the middle of the great decision-making process of the Allies at the very highest level. In London, dealing daily with Prime Minister Winston Churchill, he proved to be an outstanding diplomat and politician, not only with Churchill, but with de Gaulle and other French leaders as well. He was successful because he was true to his character. <clears throat> the situation in North Africa following the invasion in the fall of 1942 was exceedingly complicated with a lot of false promises coming from the British, the Americans, to the various French factions, but not from Eisenhower. I know only one method of operation, he wrote in his diary, to be as honest with others as I am with myself. When President Franklin Roosevelt pressured him to get tough with the local French, Eisenhower refused, explaining my whole strength in dealing with the French has been based upon my refusal to quibble or to stoop to any kind of subterfuge or double dealing. <coughs> the French responded to this. De Gaulle told him, as long as you say that, I believe it. He was equally successful with his sometimes difficult British subordinates and his sometimes egotistical American subordinates. And he'd only mention the names of Montgomery and Patton, and you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> they might not agree with his decisions, but they gave him their trust. Indeed, whenever his wartime associates described Eisenhower, whether they were superiors or subordinates, there was one word that almost every one of them used. It was trust. People trusted him, for the most obvious and simple of reasons. He was trustworthy. General Montgomery didn't think much of Eisenhower as a soldier, but he appreciated other qualities. His real strength lies in his human qualities, Montgomery said. He has the power of drawing the hearts of men towards him as the magnet attracts the bit of metal. He merely has to smile at you and you trust him at once. Scrupulous honesty was an integral part of Eisenhower's character and a learned experience. He saw and experienced the payoff for this trust. He knew that telling the truth was the only way to deal effectively with his problems. He also developed a technique to deliver his message. I refuse, he wrote, I refuse to put anything in diplomatic or suave terminology and carefully cultivate the manner and reputation of complete bluntness and honesty. Just a man too simple-minded to indulge in circumlocution. Thus did the Kansas farm boy approach Charles de Gaulle and Winston Churchill 
and Franklin Roosevelt and so many others, and it always worked. He was the general who hated war. Some like Patton gloried in it, but Eisenhower could not. He signed every letter of condolence coming out of Europe for three years. A very sobering experience. He was the one who ordered the bombing and shelling of German cities. He hated doing that, too. Hated having to destroy when he wanted to build. But he did his duty with all his skill and energy. In 1943, his older brother Arthur sent him a newspaper clipping that stressed his mother's pacifism and the irony of her son being a general. Eisenhower wrote back to say of the pacifist, I doubt whether any of them detest war as I do. They probably have not seen bodies rotting on the ground or smelled the stench of decaying human flesh. Probably they have not visited a field hospital crowded with the desperately wounded. What separates me from the pacifist is that I hate the Nazis more than I hate war. He told Mamie in a wartime letter, I think that all these trials and tribulations must come upon the world because of some great wickedness. Yet one would feel that man's mere intelligence to say nothing of his spiritual perceptions, would find some way of eliminating war. The contrast between Eisenhower and those generals who gloried in war could not have been greater. He had a very keen sense of family, of the way in which each casualty meant a grieving family back home. In 1963, when he was filming with Walter Cronkite a television special entitled D-Day Plus 20 Years, Cronkite sitting on that stone wall that looks onto that magnificent cemetery at Omaha, Cronkite asked him what he thought about when he returned to Normandy. In reply, he spoke not of the things that other generals would have brought up. He didn't speak about the tanks or the guns or the planes or the ships or the personalities of the commanders or their opponents or how he fooled the Germans or of the victory. Instead, he spoke of the families of the men buried in the American cemetery. He said he could never come to this spot without thinking of how blessed he and Mamie were to have grandchildren and how much it saddened him to think of all the couples in America who had never had that blessing because their only son was buried here. So far he looks like a saint, but he was a healthy, vigorous man in his early 50s during the war. And men at war are notoriously receptive to female charm when they are far from home and close to danger. For many people, the test of character is the marriage vow. In other words, what about Kay Summersby? <laughs> Kay was Ike's personal secretary and sometime driver. She was young enough to be his daughter, very attractive, with a bubbly personality that Churchill and almost everyone else found charming. She had lost her fiancé in North Africa and had fallen in love with her boss. For his part, how could he help but be responsive? He liked her enormously, probably had a crush on her. They were always together, but almost never alone. Decades later, in a book published after her death, Kay claimed that they had fallen in love and that both had realized it in January 1944 when he returned to England from a short visit to Washington. 
They had their only evening together alone. There was a fireplace. They sat on the floor. His kisses absolutely unraveled me, Kay wrote. According to her account, it was a passionate but unconsummated experience. Because after they took off each other's clothes, Eisenhower was flaccid. This may have been because, as one aide put it in a grand understatement, he had a lot on his mind. <laughs> More likely, it seems to me, his stern sense of morality, character, and honesty overrode his passion. He was incapable of cheating on his wife. Or it may be that the incident never happened. That it was merely an old woman's fantasy. No one will ever know. What is important to note is that not even Kay ever claimed that they had a genuine love affair. Nor is it true that Eisenhower asked President Harry Truman for permission to divorce his wife in order to marry Kay. Which was always a ridiculous story to begin with because he was a five-star general. They don't ask anybody's permission to do anything. <laughs> what he did ask Truman for was permission to have Mamie join him in occupied Germany. Throughout the war, when Kay was with him always, his love for Mamie was constant. His sustaining force was the thought that when the war was over, he and Mamie could live together again. He loved Mamie for half a century. Except when he was off at war, they slept in the same bed for 50 years. And you've been listening to the voice of Stephen Ambrose. And I love the line that he gave to his own family member about pacifism. And he said, what separates me from the pacifists is that I hate the Nazis more than I hate war. And you couldn't say it better. And that word trust, that's what he had, that's what he engendered his personality. Maybe not the greatest battle mind, um, but boy, he knew how to marshal the best and put them in the right places. Let's return to the story. But, Loving Mamie did not necessarily preclude loving Kay. Or at least loving her under the special situation in which they lived from the summer of 1942 to the spring of 1945. He was lucky to have her around. And the Allies were lucky she was there. The best advice in attempting to pass any judgment on the Eisenhower-Summersby relationship was given by one of Eisenhower's staff officers to an office gossip Back in 1943, leave Kay and Ike alone. She's helping him win the war. In 1939, when it looked like he might be forcibly retired as a lieutenant colonel, his son John had asked him if he regretted having spent his career in the Army. Not at all, Eisenhower replied. He said he had found his life in the Army wonderfully interesting. It brought me into contact with men of ability, honor, and a sense of high dedication to their country. The real satisfaction for a man is to do the best he can. My ambition in the Army was to make everybody I worked for regretful when I was ordered to other duty. Leadership was another part of his character. He was born to lead. And he was trained to lead. He told John once that leadership was the one art that could be learned. But of course, only the born leader can say that. Eisenhower reinforced his natural talent. He studied the subject of leadership intensely. And he wrote some of his best analytical material on the subject. 
An important part of leadership for Eisenhower rested on certain matters of character. These included modesty and a genuine eagerness to share the applause. Thus, through the war, he never forgot how much he was dependent on others. Thus, through the war, when reporters came to him, he would say, go see Bradley, go see Patton, get your story there. They're the ones that are winning this war for us. <laughs> Sharing the credit for his success and taking the personal blame for what went wrong was Eisenhower's leadership style. In all the announcements of D-Day, the operative words were the Allies, or we. In the announcement Eisenhower wrote by hand, to release to the press in the event of failure, the operative word was I, as in, it's all my fault. Always take your job seriously, never yourself, was one of his favorite lines. A corollary to that sentiment was his willingness to sacrifice himself for the good of the whole. In early 1944, Eisenhower wanted to put the Allied bombers to work on transportation targets in France in order to isolate Normandy. The bomber commanders said no. They wanted to continue the strategic bombing campaign inside Germany. Eisenhower felt so strongly about the issue that he told the combined chiefs of staff that either they gave him his transportation targets, railroads and turntables and marshalling yards and bridges and the like, in France, or I'm simply going to have to go home. In other words, Eisenhower was not ready to commit his forces to the attack until he was certain that he had utilized every asset he had to the uttermost. If he couldn't use the assets as he saw fit, he would resign his commission. When he made the threat, he was holding the most coveted command in the history of warfare. He got his way, and the transportation plan was a big success. He later used the same threat in a knockdown dispute with Montgomery over strategy and command, and he again had his way. It was an integral part of him, this ability to know exactly when to use his personal asset, the power of his name, to make the ultimate threat. It showed a nice sense of balance about political factors and an accurate measurement of his own strength in a struggle over policy. He much preferred working with the team to having to act on his own. A stress on teamwork began when he was a child, showed again at West Point, and was reinforced by his experiences as a football coach on various Army bases in the 1920s. By 1952, the year Eisenhower entered into politics at age 62, his character as formed by heredity and experience was set in cement. It included, as I have said, the qualities of love, honesty, faithfulness, responsibility, modesty, generosity, duty, and leadership, along with a hatred of war. These were bedrock. Or were they? This paragon of virtue I am describing had lived in the shelter of the army nearly all of his life. Character testing opportunities or temptations were almost unknown to him. It's easy to be virtuous when virtue is rewarded, and this will be a hard sell to many veterans in here, but it usually is in the Army. It's not so easy to be virtuous when virtue is ignored and partisanship is rewarded, as in politics. He grew up in the Army, and he swore like a sergeant, 
although the words he used were never sexual or had anything to do with anatomy, they were always Christ and damn and God and words like that. Once he was at a luncheon with some cabinet members during the 56 re-election campaign and someone said something about somebody proposing something and Eisenhower snorted these damned amateurs. He said, you know, there's only, in all the world, there's only two places where amateurs think that they're better than the professionals. Military strategy and prostitution. <laughs> now this was an all-male luncheon. And having said that, he blushed and confessed a bit shamefacedly, that's the only off-color story I know. <laughs> Where his character showed most decisively was on questions of war, and more specifically, a first strike against the Soviet Union or in Asia. He was president during the worst decade of the Cold War. He was the only president to have a decisive lead over the Soviets in nuclear weapons a lead so decisive that he could have ordered a preventative war which, had a, which would have destroyed the Soviet Union as a military power and they would have been unable to retaliate. Given the amounts of money the United States was spending in the arms race and the fear it engendered and the fact that the Soviets would soon be able to retaliate and eventually might pull even in nuclear weaponry, the temptation to use the bomb while we still had the lead was tremendous. At the time of the Bien Phu in 1954, during the various crises over the Chinese offshore islands in the mid-50s, and regularly with regard to the Soviet Union, some of Eisenhower's principal advisors gave in to that temptation. These included his Joint Chiefs of Staff, his Vice President, his Secretary of State, members of his National Security Council, and many pundits. Told on May 1, 1954, that the National Security Council was preparing a paper calling for the use of atomic bombs to save the French at Dien Bien Phu, Eisenhower responded, I certainly do not think that the atom bomb can be used by the United States unilaterally. He then went on to get to the heart of the matter. You boys must be crazy. We can't use those awful things against Asians for the second time in less than 10 years, my God. And you're listening to Stephen Ambrose recounting many of the stories he told in his definitive biography of Dwight D. Eisenhower. And I love a few of the things he said about Ike's leadership style, and this the most important, sharing the credit for success and taking the blame for what went wrong was his leadership style. And this quote perhaps best states his character, always take your job seriously, not yourself. Let's return to the story. It was characteristic of him always to ask, what happens next? If we do such and so, what are the likely consequences? Suppose we do pull it off, then what? And what do the other players do? It was an attempt to look into the future, and it stood him in good stead as president. After DNB and Fu fell, the Joint Chiefs recommended a preventative attack against the Soviet Union. Eisenhower asked them to think about what they were proposing. I want you to carry this question home with you. Gain such a victory, and what are you going to do with it? 
Here would be a great area from the Elba River all the way to Vladivostok, just torn up and destroyed without government, without its communications, just an area of starvation and disaster. I ask you, what would the civilized world do about it? I repeat, there is no victory except in your imagination. Another quality was patience. Make no mistakes in a hurry was a favorite axiom of his. When advisors urged him to destroy the Soviet Union while we could still get away with it, he told them to be patient. That in the end, the Soviet system would implode because it was rotten at its core. That this would take a long time, maybe as long as 50 years. But they would have to educate their own people in order to stay up with modern technology. And when they did, they would sow the seeds of their own undoing. He was a good steward. In his farewell address, he pointed out, we, you and I, our government, must avoid plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. And then he uttered what, of all his lines, is my all-time favorite. He said, we want democracy to survive for all ages to come. That faith in democracy was total, even after five years of dealing with Congress. In 1957, he told Swede, each congressman thinks of himself as intensely patriotic. But it does not take the average member long to conclude that his first duty to his country is to get himself reelected. This leads to a capacity for rationalization that is beyond belief. It was characteristic of him to seek compromise. Extremes to the right and to the left of any political dispute are always wrong. He liked to say. The Democrats controlled Congress for six of his eight years in office. He got on with them smoothly. A brief assessment of his accomplishments as president reveals something more of the man and his character. First and foremost, he presided over eight years of prosperity, marred only by two minor recessions. By later standards, it was a period of nearly full employment. The average unemployment rate in the 50s was 4%. And no inflation. The average inflation rate in the 1950s was 1.5% a year, about which he worried awfully. There was a 4% rise in real wages each year for blue-collar workers. Indeed, by almost every standard, GNP, personal income and savings, home buying, auto purchases, capital investment, highway construction, and so forth, it was the best decade of the century. Shirley Eisenhower's fiscal policies, his refusal to cut taxes or increase defense spending, his insistence on a balanced budget played some role in creating this happy situation. His special triumphs came in the field of foreign affairs and were directly, directly related to his character. By making peace in Korea five months after taking office and avoiding war thereafter, and by holding down the cost of the arms race, he achieved greatness. No one knows how much money he saved the United States. No one knows how many lives he saved by ending the war in Korea and refusing to enter any others. Despite a half dozen and more virtually unanimous 
recommendations to do so. Dien Bien Phu, Kumoi Matsu, many others. But he made peace and he kept the peace. Whether any other man could have led the country through that decade without going to war cannot be known. What we do know is that Eisenhower did it. Eisenhower seldom boasted, but he did on this one. The United States never lost a soldier or a foot of ground in my administration, he said. We kept the peace. People ask how it happened. By God, it didn't just happen, I'll tell you that. His magnetic appeal to millions of his fellow citizens seemed to come about as a natural and effortless result of his sunny disposition. But he worked at his apparent artlessness. That big grin and bouncy step often masked depression, doubt, or utter weariness. He believed it was the critical duty of a leader to always exude optimism. He made it a habit to save all of his doubts for his pillow. For 40 years, he chain smoked cigarettes, four packs a day. At age 58, he quit cold turkey, and he never again touched tobacco. Clearly, he was a man of tremendous willpower. Although at the Paris summit, the abortive Paris summit in May of 1960, when Khrushchev was going on and on about Francis Gary Powers and U2 and demanding an apology and pounding the table and so on, Eisenhower scribbled on the back of his memo pad, God, I wish I had a cigarette. <laughs> he used that tremendous willpower to conquer his own most negative characteristic, an awful temper. When he got mad, it just everybody knew immediately. His face just lit up, beat red, and, and the tension in his body was a palpable thing that could be felt all through the room. His aides lived in terror of those moments of outbreak of his temper. Now, anger that is contrived, that is put on for show and a purpose, an actor's anger, can be an effective tool of leadership. It was one Eisenhower often used. But genuine anger, Deep, blind anger is the enemy of leadership. Eisenhower often felt it with Montgomery, with McCarthy, with others, but he never acted on it. One way he controlled his anger was to do his best to follow his own rule, never question another man's motives. His wisdom, yes, but not his motives. He also tried to always assume the best about others until shown otherwise. He could do so consistently even in a world full of high-powered men whose motives were often self-serving or base because of this most outstanding personal characteristic of his, his love for life and for people. No one ever caught this better than Richard Nixon, who observed on the day Eisenhower died in 1969 that everybody loved Ike because Ike loved everybody. Nixon went on to confess that he could scarcely believe such a thing was possible. <laughs> because he said, in my experience, most politicians are men with very strong hatreds. Well, Lord knows that Nixon was a man full of such feelings. And a man who always questioned the other guy's motives. But as for Eisenhower, 
The only man he ever really hated was Adolf Hitler. He was the general who hated war, but who hated the Nazis more. He was old-fashioned, a Victorian who came to power in the mid-20th century. His virtues were those of the 19th century. Honesty, integrity, and religious devotion and conviction were some of them. To my knowledge, he never lied in his private life. Not once. In his public responsibilities, he lied twice. Once in 1944 to Hitler about where he was going to invade. <laughs> and once again on May Day, 1960, to Khrushchev about what Francis Gary Powers was doing in that U-2 over the Soviet Union. In my own life, when I'm faced with a moral question or a dilemma or a personal problem of choice, I'm in the habit of asking myself, what would I do? Sad to relate, I often, even usually, perhaps always, come up short of his standards. My only consolation is that so do most of the men I know or whose lives I have studied. And you've been listening to Stephen Ambrose and what storytelling. A special thanks to the estate, also to Greg Hengler for pulling that all together. And my goodness, the stories and the part about patience. And my dad had this book on my nightstand. My dad loved Eisenhower so much he went to Gettysburg College because that's where Ike lived. So he could just see the old man. But the word patience was one my dad always circled around. Make no mistakes in a hurry. But what I most remember about this story is Ike going back to memorialize D-Day and what he talked about weren't the generals, weren't the tanks, weren't the numbers. It was the boys and particularly the families that lost an only son. And that, of course, is the story of my family. My mother's father lost their only son. And that was uh, something Ike understood, the gravity of that. The story of Dwight D. Eisenhower told by Stephen Ambrose here on Our American Stories, and a special thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College, always keeping our eyes on history, the past as a guide to our future. This is Our American Story. Our American Story.